0: I want you to open your Bible this morning to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. I want to use the word unique this morning in my title for the message, the word unique, because as I looked up in the dictionary, it is something that must be done, something that can only be done by one person. That's in the title. It's something that in this form, in this word, it's something that only God can do. Therefore, it is unique. Nobody else can do what I want to talk about this morning but God. But what I want to talk about is something that has to be done. It's not an option. It's not an auto club. We ought to do this. It is something that God must do and that we must have done. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Surely this is very familiar to all of you. For he says, being confident of this very thing. Now, the word confident is from the same basic root word that the word believe comes from. So it has the flavor of believing. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It appears to me that something must be done. That when we all, all of us, whoever we are, when we came to the Lord, we were everything except what God wanted. That is, we weren't spiritual people, we weren't dedicated people to God, we just realized we were sinners. God offered to forgive us, and we took Him at His word, and we came to Him with minds that need to be renewed, a life that needs to be reprogrammed, and a direction to go that we know nothing about. But here we are, and He's willing to do something that only He can do. Now the Bible says God begins a work. That is, He begins to do something. Now we're told many times in the Bible that when God saves you, He begins to make adjustments in your life. He begins to cleanse you, begins to refine you. Well, he is at work in you. Remember Philippians 2, God is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So what he's doing is what he wants, but he also makes you want this to happen and you want him to do it because you realize the more you walk with the Lord, you can't do what he wants you to do. I don't care how hard you try, what kind of program you're in, you cannot, without him, do what he wants. And if what he wants is not done, then where will we be? At the end, so there's something that God has to do. You see, this idea of performance comes from a Greek word which means to bring to an end or accomplish. The word, he will complete this. Complete, he will bring it to an end. You can't. That's what impressed me the most about this, because I've thought like this for years, but. We're coming down to the end right now as I speak this day. We're in the end times. The world is more shakable now than it's ever been in history since it's created. There's more dangers lurking, more damage can be done now amongst men and in nations than ever before. There's more uncertainty, more meanness, more ugliness, more indifference to life now, this day, than ever before. And this day is different from all the other days in history because now those kind of people can do great damage because of bombs and nuclear warfare and terrorism and the dangers that lurk every day and perilous times, as the Bible said, truly have come. And as we look at all the world scene and there's no solutions to all these problems, at least nobody's brought one yet. And we see all the gloom and doom out there, there's another picture you can look at. It's what God is doing because what God is doing is just the opposite of that. He takes things that are messed up, turned around, confused, things that the devil has tampered with your whole life, and he begins to affect those lives, to change them from what they used to be to something that is rich and good, peaceful and joyful, and has no fear of what's coming in this world. These are the last days. The devil's doing something and God is doing something. And the work that God is doing, he says, is in you. We like to look at great movements and things that are happening and lots of people involved and running to and following and getting excited about, but he said, the Almighty said, the work that he is doing is in, inside, you. It is you that he is after. It is you that he is going to change. Like he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse eight, he said, who shall confirm you unto the end? He shall confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word confirm means establish. I don't know why he would do this for us. I think my entrance into Christianity years ago, initially, because I didn't know anything, I just figured that God was glad to have me and that all I need to do was find my seat in the religious setting and Just try to be a better person. But when I really got saved, I realized there's much more to life than just going to church. That there is something way beyond me out there that God wants to do. There's something I don't know anything about. There's something out there that is so important that I know nothing about that I must find it. That's why we gravitated to people who taught us years ago. That's why we got convicted and unsettled when we began to hear the word taught to us, because it brought us out of a complacency, out of some lethargic, indifferent state of mind. We began to get uneasy because we realized we're not cooperating with God. We're not really paying attention. We're not allowing Him to speak plainly to us. But because we were particularly stirred, this is the work of God to make you concerned. Whoever you started with years ago may not have been concerned then. They may not be concerned today, but you were because God Himself chose to do something in you, something that made you look for Him, something that made you seek after Him, something that He wanted. Remember, Paul wrote, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto something. We are His workmanship. How many people can say, I am what God is doing? What is happening in my life is what the Almighty God is doing. Yes, His plan will complete and fulfill prophecy and His word over all the earth. And yes, great and marvelous things will happen over all the earth. But as far as you and I are concerned, what He's doing is in me. It's in us. And the Bible says, He that started this work is going to finish it. He's not gonna pick you up to start you down the right road and then forsake you later on. He chose you before the foundation of the world to be his elect. If you are, if you've got this urge and this desire to know and love God, you're one of them. And what he's doing is he's taking you and making you have a desire for what he's got. If only God can do this, this hunger, The danger you should be concerned about in your life is when you can fold your arms and the word goes in one ear and out the other and you walk out of here no different than when you came in. That's when you should be real concerned because nothing is working and nothing is going on. Even the little bit of guilt and conviction that you had goes quickly away once the service is over because nothing is lasting. You should be real concerned if you've been sitting like in this place for five or ten years and you're no different than you were, you should be concerned. You should be. Because God is doing something. And His work in those that it's being done in is very evident. But again, I want to impress upon you that it's only a work that He can do. And that God is at work in us. And the work that he is doing, I suspect, is going to be a work of holiness. Remember, Paul wrote these words, Therefore, having these promises, dearly beloved, in 2 Corinthians 7, when he said, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh. Where do the promises come from? From the Lord. What are they for? <laughs> to free you from the corruption that's in the world. You don't have to lust after it. You can ask God. He'll give it to you. 2 Peter 1. Okay. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh. How much filthiness did you bring to the kingdom when God saved you? How defiled were you in your flesh? I'm not talking about just lust and uncleanness. I'm talking about unforgiveness and bitterness and meanness, as well as indifference and who cares. Just attitude is an unclean thing. Let us cleanse ourselves from this stuff, from filthiness of the flesh and what else? Does it say spirit? What does he mean, cleansing ourselves from filthiness of flesh and spirit? Listen to me, because I don't know if we think about this enough, or maybe you young folks need to. How much spiritual defilement is there in people's lives? How much religious confusion? How about if you came out of a church that taught you all wrong and you were mentally armed with that when God finally saves you? Do you think you have to get rid of that? Yeah, because you can't approach God in darkness. He's a God of light. There might have been demonic activity in your life that was passed on through your family. There could have been a lot of demonic activity in your life. Ways that were curious and mysterious, that's not right. You brought that with you into the kingdom. God knew you were that way when he saves you. When he saves you, you come before him, all of that's there. If you don't deal with it, it'll stay there. Then he, in his program of his work in you, he begins to pour out his word upon you, if you're willing to listen to it, and his word begins to locate you. You understand? His word begins to bring to the surface these problems in your life, these weaknesses and these defilements. It's God who is doing the exposing. His word is like a light and it begins to shine upon you and it leaves nothing uncovered because God is going to change all of you, not most of you, but your whole life. If you want out of here, you don't want to change anymore, go to another church or quit or change your attitude or read another book. You don't have to put up with this, but you can't make it to where God is bringing you unless he does a work in you. At what point can we quit and say that's enough when God says there's more? So that word begins to shine in our life. We begin to be exposed. That uneasiness, every time you go to church, you get convicted about something I hope. Something else you gotta deal with in your life. Something else. And the only way you can deal with stuff in your life that's gonna keep you from God is by desiring to hear what God has to say and then to respond to God and say yes. This is where faith comes in. I take God at his word. I will accept as true what he has said. I deny myself my rights to act the way I used to act anymore because God must judge that. And your life begins to change. This is why we're here. We're not here to hear some clever sermon, some new slant on something, or some new information about the Iranians. We're here to hear about you. It is God who says the work that I'm doing inside of you is a work that is so necessary that if I don't do it, I not only cannot use you, but you are useless to me. If a man would purge himself from these things, wood, hay, and stubble, what does the Bible say? He shall be a vessel unto honor, useful, meet for the master's use. But if he doesn't purge himself, if you don't respond and cooperate with God, listen carefully to what he is saying. Judge yourself, examine yourself, deal with yourself. This is how God deals with you. And that's why it's such a privilege in these last days for us to hear the word. But we're to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. This is where the change takes place This is where the victory comes to creep into our life. This is when the old truly does pass away from its control of you and new things happen. We call it the Lordship of Jesus. He comes in and your life takes on purpose and meaning. But he never does this without his word. And if the word that people are hearing today is darkness, it's not true, it's not exactly right. If it's not an unadulterated pure word that you may grow thereby, you don't grow, nothing happens. I can't tell you in the last days how deceptive it is in Christianity. I don't know the magnitude of it. I just know that Jesus said in the last days there will be many deceivers. Imposters and evil men will mislead and be misled. All over Christendom. And if we have engaged ourselves in a form of religion for example, that denies the power of religion and we just have to do the best we can because God ain't gonna do anything, we're gonna be defeated. And we're gonna find ourselves living aimlessly without purpose. But when God speaks and we begin to deal with it, oh, what a wonderful experience it is. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter five, that's our main text today. Just wanted to get you started in Philippians sort of a warm-up, okay? But 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, in Peter's epistle here, chapter 5, he begins by talking basically to the leaders, you young men that are going to be preachers here in the last days and proclaim and others, who you don't know yet what you're going to do, but you probably will also. He talks about the elders in verse 1 and 2. He said in verse 2, feed the flock of God. Feed them. Don't impress them, feed them. The word feed is the word poimeno, which means shepherd or pastor. It's translated that way in the Bible. Shepherd the flock of God, feed them. Take in the oversight of them, care about them. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Not because you're getting paid to do it, because you're not getting paid to do it. You're getting supported, but you're not getting paid because you're not a hireling. You're not doing this for a fee. And do it of a ready mind. Verse 3 said, and yet don't try to domineer the people. Don't try to rule people and make them to be your subjects and slaves. It's not what you're called to do. And he says in verse 4 when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory for caring for his people. That's what he said. Now, Humble yourselves, in verse 6 and 7. Cast all your care upon him. Now remember verse 8. The one who's against us is the devil. Your adversary the devil like a roaring lion walks about, seeking whom he can devour. Anything to disrupt God's plan and program for you to prevent his work from taking place in you by a word that didn't come from him. He said he does that. He's looking for whom he can devour. And we're to resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same kind of afflictions are being accomplished in our brethren who are in the world. Then in verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called you unto his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. You notice these words. This is what we're going to preach on this morning. After you have suffered a while, make you, this is what he does, he will make you perfect, established, strong, and stable. He will settle you. This is what everybody in this assembly, me and you, this is what we all need and it's really what we want. But Let's take the first part of that verse. Do you see where he says, after you have suffered a while? Looks like we could bypass that. Suffering is not an enjoyable, fun time. We're told this, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why would that be? Why is it that I'm trying to live a life and trying to do what God wants me to do and it bothers my family, bothers my friends, my husband? It just bothers everybody around me because I'm really trying to live the Christian life and it just bothers people and they're always nagging at me, just picking at me or talking against me. Why? Because it's the work of the devil to pick at you, but God allows that. This is allowed to come against you and come at you because this is how you're gonna prove to God where your heart really is. You don't know what you believe until you're given a chance not to believe it. I wouldn't lie, what if somebody put a gun to your head and it's either the truth or you die, would you lie? You've never stole. What if you had a mistake or something on your income tax and it's going to cost you $10,000 if you check the right box? Would you? Because this is what the devil is he's a tempter, he's a misleader. He's the one who uses logic and reason in this life about what is sensible and what is reasonable, what you ought to do. Well, after all, don't you think? And yet, God makes it clear this is the way walking in it. There's no substitutes, there's no angles, no tricks with God, just do what he said. So everybody's persecuting you, you're trying to live the Christian life, and the Bible says all that live godly in Christ Jesus suffer persecution. You can get out of it, you can quit being persecuted and spare yourself that uncomfortableness. All you have to do is change the way you believe. And how many have? I've watched it my whole life, my whole Christian life. I don't know about that. Well, of course they don't know about that because it's an uncomfortable thing to have to give up something in your life that you cherish in order that you might walk with God. And you don't want to walk with God that bad, so you start making excuses why you don't give up something in your life, and then therefore your life just goes downhill and it dies. But you made a choice. It was your decision. I mean, man, what does he want? Everything, yep, and a little more. And you'll find out where you are, all of us will. We'll all find out where we are in our devotion to God by when we begin to live this life and somebody comes against it. You'll find out where you are. God allows this to happen. Did Jesus suffer? You suppose he ever suffered? Listen to this in Hebrews chapter two and verse eight. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to help them that are tempted. Was Jesus tempted? Could he have gotten out of all that agony and suffering? Could he have called 10,000 angels and escaped the cross? And all the agony and the gore and the pain could he have gotten out of it? All he would have had to do is make a decision, and he could have escaped all of that. You're tired of being weary of persecution and people yapping about you, and those days you're always wrestling with something? Give up what you believe. Go back where you were. You didn't wrestle then. None of us wrestle with issues in our life until we heard the Word. Now we can't get away from the Word, and yet we keep coming back to hear it. It's because that's what God is doing. God teaches you something and you say when all is well, yes, and then you say you'll do it and then suddenly here comes a test. And all the reasons why you don't have to take this test right now, and God is watching. It's like heaven is watching to see what you're gonna do. Now God knows what you're gonna do, you don't know what you're gonna do. I don't believe the devil knows what you're gonna do because I don't think he knows all things but you and the devil are both going to find out what you believe. Did he ever say this? Simon, Simon, behold, the devil hath desired thee. Is that in the Bible? Luke 22, 31. The devil has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. I think that's in the Bible. What did Jesus say? I have prayed for you. He didn't say, I'm gonna stop this. I'm gonna prevent the devil from making you uncomfortable. He didn't say that. He said, I'm just gonna pray for you that what you believe won't cave in. That's what he said. Peter, to whom he spoke, wrote these words. He said, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials that are going to try you as though something strange has happened to you, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of his sufferings. He's leading you into this. Oh, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't. When Jesus came up out of the river Jordan, John the Baptist baptized him, and you know, we saw the dove and the sound and all of that. What was the next thing that happened? The Bible says the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted and tested of the devil. He had to prove himself just like you have to prove yourself. In fact, the last day in Jerusalem, he was tested by the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees, all the legalists who were trying to find an error in his life, they all came and said, Master, tell us. And he was tempted. He was tempted in the wilderness when he was out there for 40 days and 40 nights. Nothing to drink, nothing to eat. Miserable, howling, cold nights. Wild animals and wild beasts, scorpions, snakes. Would you like to have gone with him? And he's out there. Pleading with God. Strong tears and crying, it says. "It wasn't comfortable out there. He wasn't in some kind of a little heavenly cloud out there with his air conditioner and heater going, say, hello, Father, how are you doing? He was on his face struggling. It was dirty. It was cold. It was miserable. He himself said he had no place to lay his head. He did all of this for us. He proved himself to be the lamb of God who was a perfect sacrifice from the almighty God for the sins of mankind. There was no flaw in him, no sin, no spot, no wrinkle, or anything. he was a perfect lamb and he dealt with everybody's sins, but he had to prove himself to be that lamb. Now he knew who he was and all of that, but the world didn't know. Remember, he was not only the son of God, he was also the son of Adam. He was a man. He was referred to as a man several times in the New Testament. Jesus, the man. He learned obedience to the things he suffered, just like you. He has been tempted, as it's written in Hebrews 2.8. He was tempted on this earth. And he is able to help those that are tempted. Jesus knows how you feel. There is a human experience in the Godhead. Somebody up there knows exactly how you feel this morning about what you're going through. Somebody knows exactly all your anticipations and your fears, somebody knows all of that. They've been here. We have a great high priest in the heavens who is able to help us because he came where we were, lived the way we live, defeated the devil, said I have overcome the world and has gone back up to heaven and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now he knows, so we're without excuse. We can never say, yeah, but he was Jesus. Yeah, he was also a man. He also suffered, just like you suffer, but suffering is a part of the Christian life. How about suffering for your convictions, for your beliefs at school, on the job site with your parents? your convictions, you believe like that? Listen to what he said, listen to what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2, 19, for this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongly. For what glory is it, if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well, and suffer for it, or you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. This is how you prove that your heart is with Him and for Him. And Peter goes on to write, if we suffer for righteousness' sakes, if you suffer for the right reasons, happy are you. You're just simply experiencing Christ's sufferings. Remember we read that a while ago, thinking not strange concerning the fiery trials? You're suffering what He suffers. Christ has come back to live in your life. He lives in your hearts. He's doing a work in you. He's showing you a new way to go. Go this way. Say this. Talk this way. Quit saying it. Quit going it. Quit reading it. Quit watching it. Quit wearing it. Go this way. Go this way. Don't eat that. Don't don't drink that. Go this way. And so you start obeying him. You're not uh, some little zombie mechanic. You got a will. You're making decisions. You're cooperating with him. And so you're making the decision. I'm going to do it. I'll go with him. And he begins to do a work in you, and you start getting persecuted. You get suffered. You lost your job. Everybody's mad at you. You wouldn't sign a petition. People think you're nuts. Your church is a cult. They distance themselves from you. Them. They don't want to really be around you because you have chosen to live so differently than everybody else. And you're suffering for it. You're being rejected. You're being persecuted. There is a certain amount of hardship in doing it God's way instead of the world's easy way that it was easier to walk a broad way in the world than a narrow way with God. But you're making the right choice and you're gonna do that. And why shouldn't the devil try to harass your headpiece, your mind? Why wouldn't the devil single you out as a determined Christian to make you dull and indifferent? Why wouldn't he tell you, you know, you're not ready for this. It isn't going to work and nothing's working. You know, everything's falling apart. Look at all the, look at the bad. And maybe you haven't been doing the way you should do and everything's falling apart. So you just, what's he going to do, quit? Where do you go when you quit? He that endures so far makes it. We got no other choice here. We have to preach it that way. You have to make people see that. There are no other options. You can't just write a little bit and say, I wrote it far enough. It never, never is that true. Never. This is what God said he will do in verse 10. First thing he said he will do is make you perfect. Whoo, perfect. Who is perfect? Wouldn't you love to be perfect? Then you can judge everybody. Perfect. Now, there's two words in the New Testament Two primary words for perfect or perfection. The first word is teleos. It's a word which means maturity and completion, full stature, full age. It's one who finishes a course. Jesus having been made perfect. Well, it simply means that Jesus finished his course and fulfilled what he was here to do. In that sense, the word perfect is used. The other word for perfect is a word that is used here in verse 10. It's the word kata, katartizo. Kata, K A T A R T I Z O, katartizo. It's used in the sense of mending, repairing, fitting, putting in right order. It's a word that here implies that when God brought you to Himself, you didn't fit into what he's doing. You're not a good fit. I think that's the way they call it today. You're not a good fit. See, the predominant idea of catartizo, the predominant idea is adjustment, of putting parts into right relationship and connections with one another. Now, one time... Jesus approached Peter and he was on the side of the seashore. He had been fishing all night long and, of course, dragging nets over the rocks and so forth. He would tear the nets and be holes in the nets. So they had to fix those. So they had their nets up on the shore, he and whoever he was with, and they were repairing, the Bible said they were mending their nets. Now, the word mending is our word perfect or katertizo. They were putting their nets back into right order. They were fixing the net so they would be useful again. Because if you don't fix it, if you don't repair it or adjust it or make it right, what good is it? What good is it? Now, there's two ways I want you to look at how this word catertizo is used because this is what God is doing. The Bible said he will make you. You don't just become. This is not some kind of an osmosis. He makes you perfect. Turn to Ephesians 4. He makes you perfect. Perfect in the sense of one in his body, so that you are a functioning, vital part of his body. The word body of Christ is often used in a universal way. People talk about the great body of Christ around the world, that God's... Universal body. Now, I don't believe that the intention in the phrase body of Christ was universal. I believe it's local. You here, you are the body of Christ right here. There may be another one in this town. That doesn't mean he has two bodies, but it means that wherever he assembles his people together, they are like and as a body. They use the metaphor of the body because you got arms and feet. That is, it is supposed to do something. It is to function harmoniously. It is to submit to one another. If my finger did not submit to my mind, my face would suffer. I just scratched my face, my face is itching. My face says, I have an itch. Send thou thy finger (laughs) and minister to me. It's called body ministry. It is. It's what it's called, isn't it? It is a response from one part of you to another part of you because there is a need in another part of you. What if your hand did not like your face and your face was itching and your hand said, so? What do I care about your ugly face? I ain't putting my hand up there and scratching something like that. No, I would just itch. What if my feet didn't like each other? How would I walk? I'd take a step and I'd fall down because one of them wasn't gonna cooperate with the other one. How could you swim? You couldn't function, period, unless there was harmony and purpose in your body. And your body takes all of its orders from the head. The head is Christ. And he's the one that issues the signals. But only those that know him and hear him can respond to him. In Ephesians 4, he said he put into the church ministry gifts. These are not charismatic gifts. The word gift here is doma. It's like gift is a person. And these gifts are apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What are they for? Is it verse 12? For the perfecting of the saints. our word perfecting is katartizo. For the putting into right order the body of Christ in Shelbyville, Kentucky, out here on Pierce Industrial Road. I don't know what he's doing anywhere else. I can't answer for them or for that. My only concern as far as Judgment Day is in this room. This is who I'm linked with. Are you with me? This is who God hooked me up with. I don't know why either, but this is who he hooked me up with. I'm a part of you, you're a part of me. I'm responsible for you, you're responsible to me. I should submit to you, you should submit to me. And we should care about each other. I think it's the people who really care about each other are the ones who respond most willingly to others' needs. But what if a person isn't doing that? For the perfecting of the saints. Now somebody's gonna take this wrong, but I'm gonna say it anyway, okay? I don't wanna come this far along in my Christian life and then be afraid of y'all. Some of y'all won't even go to a picnic. You don't like to do, go to picnic. I don't like picnics. Or we have a meeting. We have a gathering. The church just has a little something we're going to do. I don't like to go to those kind of things. Then you're really not a part of us, are you? Oh, I go here every week. I don't care where you go. What God is doing is putting us together. Jesus prayed this in John 17, that they may be One. And the devil does whatever he can to bring divisions. Reasons in your mind why I don't feel comfortable with that one or that one or that one. And I don't think I want to go to that. I don't like chili. Well, nobody's going to make you go. You're being tested. This is a moment God has put you here. he said, all right, you're a part of my body. Do you believe I brought you to Shelbyville? Yes. Do you really think you're a part of this body of believers? Yeah. Do you flow with them and function with them? Are you trying to be part of each other here? Yeah. No, you're not. Not always. Too many other things come up. It's too easy not to. Why is it so quiet? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you quiet. But has he not brought us together? Let me keep saying it. Are we not biblically said to be members one of another? Are we or not? What if all your friends are somewhere else and none of them are here? What if you have a greater desire to be with people outside of here than you do with people in here? Now I'm meddling now, I know it, I know it. But no wonder you're uncomfortable. I thought about this this week, this point right here. The only real Friends, true friends, not real friends. I have childhood buddies I grew up with. I talked to one the other day. My only true friends are right in this room. I don't run around with. I have know other people. I've been to other places other people. Only people in the world I'm comfortable with are people right here. See, I feel I'm obligated to love you and to speak the truth to you and not hold it back, unless wisdom would dictate not right now. See, you're whom I am with. You are my brothers and my sisters in the body that God put me in. Well, you're the preacher, I know I'm a preacher, but I'm as much a part of this as you are. I just happen to do a different thing here, but I'm responsible to be here, I'm responsible to function here, to pray for the people here, to do what I can to be of some assistance to you, and dear God, if I am a finger and you itch, may I care enough to scratch you. May I just say, well, there's a scratcher somewhere else in the church, let them do it. If I don't care about that, I don't really love you. To love somebody is to care about somebody, Is to minister. We are members one of another. And he said that he gave into the church apostles, Prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Ministry is not to entertain you. Are you listening? It's not to impress you. It's not to gain your admiration and say, oh, we couldn't do it. It's nothing like that. The purpose of ministry, period, is to make disciples, teaching them all the things whether I have said to you and requiring them to live this way. And fuss at them if you have to. Like this thing about fellowship. When we don't fellowship the way we're supposed to, I should say something. You can take it personal. I don't really care if you do. That's fine. But just think about it. Just think about it. Because you see, he said, I didn't say this. He said that he put in the church all these gifts for the perfecting of the saints. Look at verse 16. How can verse 16 work if we don't even like each other or even know each other? I told a person here one time who came sometime here to church. They went to other churches part of the week and they came here and one time said something to me, you're my pastor, and I said, this doesn't bring you friends. I said, I'm not so sure I'm your pastor. You're only here half the time. You're at another place the other half the time. I don't know which one of us is the leader. Maybe you need the best two out of three. I didn't say that. I know who's here. I know who's not here, and more than you know, I know why you're not here, when you should be here. If there's a called assembly, and you say you're a member of the body, you should be here, whether you have other likes or not, you should be here, you should. Every time we meet together, I think Jesus said he would be with us, and where he is, things can happen. You can learn things about people you didn't know. You can pray about them. You can sit at a picnic and drink tea and and have a good conversation. You don't have to stay till dark and say, can I go home? Preacher, can I go home? Yet I've been here. No, you should have gone home a long time ago. No, we're here not because we have to be here. We're here because we get to be here. This is my family. This is my family more than anybody else in the world. And that doesn't bother me because I like people here. I really do. I really do. This other thing, go over to Galatians chapter six. Not only does he want you to be a part of the body, but he wants you, as I've been saying, he wants you to care about each other. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, let me ask you a question. You ever seen a Christian here doing something wrong? If you see a brother or sister overtaken in a fault, what are you supposed to do? Call the pastor, call the preacher. No, ain't what it said, is it? Because you're a member of the body, you have a responsibility for what's happening here, like I do. I have to give an account because I'm the one that sort of orchestrates this thing, hopefully by the help of the Holy Spirit. But if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, what do we do about it? Well, it says, if your Bible says the same thing mine does it says you which are spiritual now nobody wants to admit that but if nobody admits that then nobody can do anything about it you who are spiritual restore such a one now the word restore is our word for perfect katatizo put that man back in right order he's out of whack he's getting away from this he's wandering away he's starting to lose his grip or she is They're starting to get into the other things. They're drifting away from these convictions that they once had. The narrow line they once drew. The years have broadened that way and they're starting to drift around and and they're not keen spiritually anymore. And you can see it. You need to go talk to them. I know many times I should have done that to my own fault. I've seen some of you sit here through the years, eager and zealous and then Later on in life, for whatever reason, you know, your arms folded, partially interested. Think, what's happened here? Well, I don't know, but it would be right to go to a person and say, are you doing all right? It appears that you're troubled by something and you're not responding spiritually to God. Can I help you? Am I intruding into your space? Or am I right? I believe you get a person convicted with a caring person with them. I believe you can gain a convicted person. If you see a brother overtaken in the fall, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Because if you don't, if you don't, and that person gets into sin, what happens? Put your finger right there. Look into James chapter five. The very last verse of James chapter five. Or look at verse 19, it says the same thing. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Do you care? This is the work of God to make us look at other people, not only ourselves, but to look at other people. We are our brother's keeper. I am, you are. We are brother's keepers because you see all scripture Listen to me, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in the right ways of God, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. We gotta have the word, we gotta have a heart and a desire And we must be willing to do what he said. And when he does, God will make us perfect. Second thing, go back to 1 Peter 5 again. Second thing he will do is he will establish you. He uses the word establish. That means he will establish you. Now, establish you simply means he will make you stable. We could use a bunch of that too. Make you stable. It means to set fast or establish firmly so that all the things that cause people to get thrown off course doesn't happen to you. You face the same temptation and winds of doctrine that others face. You hear the same stuff that other people hear, but it doesn't throw you off course because God is making you stable. If he is, then what he's doing as far as making you stable is to make you immovable, to render you immovable. What if every person in this church who calls this their church home? What if everybody was stable and steadfast, established by the Lord? Nobody could talk you out of your faith. Nobody could mislead you because you'd be established. Henry Alford, in his commentary, he was a well-respected professor and an authority and a scholar Henry Alford said about this word established, he said, he shall ground you as on a foundation. I think of the one picture about a foundation in the Bible is about that man that dug deep and found a rock. The only thing he could find that would be immovable on this earth would be a rock. And that's where he built his house. And the picture is that God shall establish you so that nothing can throw you off course. Let me tell you something. If the Lord tarries and you're here 10 years from now and you're stronger 10 years from now than you are now, God is doing a work in you. That's the evidence of it. I mean, you're stronger. You're stable. You're steadfast. And you're going to make it. Look at the next thing he said. Verse 3 in 1 Peter 5.10. He said, he will strengthen you. Remember the word in Ephesians 6 be strong in the Lord and the power of his might? How many people have ever searched the scriptures to see what that is? What is it that I'm to be strong in? I know what it says, the power of his might, but where exactly what specifically, what is it that I can latch a hold of that was given to me as defining his might? What is it? Because that's how I'm strong. Be strong in the Lord. Not be strong in your personality where I'm just tough. I can take a lot. I and mean what he's talking about. He said, be strong in the Lord. You've got to find out where his strength was. In what way was Jesus strong? That's what your strength is. He gives that to you. It doesn't come to you because you hope to have a good dream tonight. If you find out what I'm talking about, you'll search the scriptures and find out. You'll shut your day down or your activities down because you're compelled. Something is urging you on the inside to find out what it is that makes me strong. It's not me saying I'm strong because I've heard people say they're strong for 40 years and they fall away. I've seen people in places that were strong. The place doesn't even exist anymore because people, their strength was not in the Lord and in His Word, but in a system or in in what they... Thought could never fail. I wanna be strong, I wanna be standing when it's over. Not because I am particularly strong, but because Jesus in me has made me strong. He's the one that does all of this. In Ephesians chapter three and verse 16, it says this, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his grace, to be strengthened with might. In the inner man, in the inner man, is it not God doing a work in you? Would you agree with me that a man is strong when he is loyal and devoted to Jesus? That when somebody comes along and speaks unrighteous things or Distorts the scripture or rests the scripture or changes the meaning of scripture and and excuses this well now after all you know Nobody's perfect when they start talking that way. Does that make you know something's wrong? You know why because you're strong You're not only grounded and established by the Lord, but being grounded God keeps doing a work in you that makes you strong You're able to resist and the devil cannot just throw you off course anymore. You're faced by those things Every wind of doctrine, all the adversity the devil can blow. It comes at you. But I look around this room. People, some of you have been facing adversity off and on for years. You're still here. Others that used to face the same thing, they quit. Why didn't you quit or find an easier way? Because God has made you strong. And fourthly, in 1 Peter 5, fourthly, he said that he will settle you. He will settle you. Like our verse about foundation, settle means to ground securely. These are the things that God is doing. He will perfect you. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. And he will settle you. Now, only he can do this. No preacher can make you do this. A preacher could teach you this, but only God can do this. And God does this, as I've already said, as you cooperate with what he says and you begin to receive it, God makes it a part of you. It makes you strong. It makes you stable. It makes you steadfast. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. And you here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly this morning, you and me, you who at one time you were alienated or cut off and enemies in your mind because of your wicked works, yet now hath God reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, notice this, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable, In his sight. Does it say that? Now, is this the goal then that God has for us? He knew what he got. We all can relate to wicked works. Vile mindsets and ugly living. I don't care what you did and how bad it was. It doesn't matter. It's all under the blood. You've been forgiven. But he brings that kind of trash to himself. And he cleanses it on the inside, and you know the word is designed to renew your mind, and he begins his work that I've been talking about for an hour. He does that because the end of this journey, if this work continues to take place in your life, and you keep getting more and more spiritually alert and sensitive and desirous, you will come to the place where God's work in you makes you holy, listen, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight who knows all things. Do you see what the the magnitude of that? I wonder, (laughs) how can this be? In your sight with what you know and nothing is hidden from you, I can stand before you and you have nothing to reprove me of? not an attitude or a mistake or a failing, a weakness in some area. We excuse ourselves for having all this for why we don't live holy lives. But he said, you're going to deal with us to the point that we're not only going to be holy, but we're going to be without fault. That's Jude 24. Without fault, he's going to present you faultless before the throne of his grace. I think Paul wrote without spot, wrinkle, or what? Any such thing. Now, what kind of work is God gonna do in you that's gonna make you without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing? How's he gonna do it? Look at the next verse. The first two-letter word in the next verse is the word what? If. Uh Uh-oh, now it becomes personal. We were preaching a while ago, and now we're meddling. If you continue, in the faith, not everybody has. I've been here long enough to know that there's three times more people have left here than stayed here, four times. If everybody that came here and stayed here, I'd have probably had whiter hair. He tells us, if you continue in the faith, nobody can make you do that. The one thing about you that is unique is that you have a will. And your will pilots and determines your whole life. Whether you walk with God or whether you make excuses and change course, you have a will. So the decision this morning with all of you here out in the plastic world, the decision about what God is doing and how much of it he does is up to you. God doesn't force himself on you. He tells you what he wants to do. He tells you what he will do because there are people who will let him do it. And the invitation is to you. He wants to make you holy, unblameable, unprovable in his sight, without fault, without spot, or any such thing. Every little stinking thing in your life is gonna change because God has a way of doing it. I'm not gonna say this is prophetic, but I'll say it this way. You haven't seen what real chastisement is yet when God begins to cleanse and purge his people that are dragging their feet. It's gonna be a lot of loud tears and crying here and wherever they are. We've got a chance right now in a time of peace to just let God have his way. Boy, we have all these reasons why we don't have time. We're not ready for that. I don't know about that. And we sort of draw back, and he's not getting his way. But he said he was going to do a work in you and present you faultless, didn't he? So he's going to, I don't use the word yank, but he's going to yank you out of your complacency and do the kind of work in you that he did in Job. When Job was done, he says, I've heard of you, and I've talked about you and spoken about you, but I never knew you, but I do now. And I bow my head. These are my words, and I lower myself before you because you are God. That's what God does. If, if in verse twenty-three you continue in the faith, listen, grounded—that's our word—and settled, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. What testimony do you fathers in this room have with your children when you talk about Jesus but you don't live it? What testimony do you mothers have with your sons and daughters? If you take them to church and you talk about this but all the mistakes and all the decisions you make at home and the stuff you do just denies the Lord. Do you think they're gonna continue this way? Your kids are gonna sit in here and wonder what's wrong here. They hear what I'm saying and they know it's right, but they're not seeing it, don't see it. What do you children, you young folks think, what do you think your parents think when you come in here and you say you're a Christian and? And You sing your songs and go through all your little meetings and you go home and you sass and you won't pay attention. Everything that your parents say, you protest it. What do you think they're supposed to think? They're really glad about your Christianity? It's not Christianity at all. There's no evidence of Jesus manifesting himself in your life. Families get dysfunctional. They don't work right. I watched it when I grew up. One day when my eyes got open to it, I made a decision. I don't want that. And it was a little late, and I drug my feet some too. But you don't have to. You can learn from our mistakes. If you continue in the faith, will you? Be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, the promises that God has made, which you have heard, which was preached unto you. Jesus said, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth him, I will show you who he is like. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid his foundation upon a rock. And when floods and temptations, trials and bad days came in his life, like floods do, and they beat vehemently upon the house that you're building, they can't shake it because your house is founded on a rock which Jesus said is like a man who comes to me, who comes to Jesus, listens carefully at what he says, and does it. He won't fall. When it's over, when the roll is called up yonder, they'll be there. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to the time of the communion of the bread and the cup, a reminder to us of the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled through which you have procured our salvation by which means we have been redeemed. Give us glad and thankful hearts this morning that all of this was done for us. Hold our hands this morning, Lord, as we join you in this journey through life. Forgive us for our weaknesses and our failings and our shortcomings and for our excuses, our miserable excuses. Help us to be thankful that you're long-suffering, you're very tolerant, and that the work you have started, you indeed will finish it. Bless us in this way this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.